Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. A few years ago, I was lucky enough to meet David Attenborough, Sir David Attenborough, in the Canadian High Commission in London. We did an event and I released this podcast afterwards. I thought I'd re-release this podcast for those of you who haven't heard of it, A, because he's a total legend and um, he's, we need to listen to what he's got to say, and because his show on Netflix, A Life on Our Planet, has just launched worldwide. So please go and check that out after listening to this podcast. And before you do all of that, though, make sure you subscribe to History Hit TV. You can watch hundreds of hours of history documentaries, new stuff, old favourites, all on History Hit TV. It's like Netflix for history. If you use the code POD1, P-O-D-1, you get a month for free and your second month for just one pound, euro or dollar. So please head over to historyhit.tv to become a subscriber. In the meantime, everyone, here is Sir David Attenborough. You have more honorary fellowships than anyone else in Britain. You were voted the most trusted celebrity in Britain. Uh, you have, a, you have a, a, shelf, a shelf groaning with, with uh, medals and, and distinctions. You've, you've won BAFTAs for black and white television, colour television, HD television, and 3D television. I think that's, that's another record. There's one question that I want to ask you, and it's important. Have you ever been involved in anything that's been a total and utter disaster? Uh, uh, my, my dear chap. <laughs> 1954, uh, 50% of things that we did were total disasters. Um, I, I won't list them in awe because we'd be here all night. But just to give you an idea of what television was like in 1953, as well. Um, I was called by the organisers, we called of our little department. We, we live, we, all our programmes came from, were live, all of them were live. They came from Alexandra Palace in two small studios, neither of which was as big as this room. And we put out um, a service that lasted two or three hours every night. Uh, and as I say, all being live, um, our job um, was speech. Uh, anything that was non-fiction, uh, we uh, were so-called talks producer. And the, now I'm now picking something a really bit extreme, but it's nonetheless true. The organiser came to me and he said, we've got um, a series of programmes we've had in, in the past year or so in which people sit in a chair and tell short stories. 
and we would like you to produce one. And we've had this one, which was commissioned by the head of the department and bought, all the rights have been bought, but nobody feels able to produce it. So you, as a new boy, produce it. Go away and do it. Uh, and I read it was, it, was a, it was a poetic short story about a love affair between a fishmonger who got his pleasure from life in arranging fish on the marble slab and one of his customers. And, uh, and, and nothing happened except that they married and were unhappy. Uh, uh, but it was clearly poetic. So how would you do it? To sit in a chair and just tell that story was obviously ludicrous. So I decided I would do it, wait for it, as a ballet to words. It was a catastrophe. The Daily Mirror said, so the BBC wanted to know whether you could dance to words. They've discovered that you can't, <laughs> and that's it. I think that there's an important point here. I look out at this crowd and, and of adventurers and explorers, lots of young people here, and I think it's wonderful to hear from you that it hasn't just been all one sort of glorious golden escalator of success. Because if you, and you look back at history... Cook and Shackleton and Scott. I mean, and it's good to know that even you've suffered setbacks and they've, and they've, and have, and have they galvanized you? They've made you stronger, they made you turn to prove the Daily Mirror the wrong next time. Yes, but we, you see, we were a little club in 1952. The people who had television sets were a minority and they used to bring up, uh, and the, the, the telephone operator would put them through to the gallery to have a word with your assistant as you were trying to direct cameras. And they would say things like, uh, this is a very boring programme. Is it, <laughs> is it going to go on for much longer? Um, and uh, she would say, um, no, I think probably another 10 or 12 minutes, but I'm told it's a terrific programme that follows her. I mean, we actually did that. It was a small club. Uh, but, uh, OK, well, then let's move on. This is interesting, because yeah. public service broadcasting, where you were able to reach every household in the country and, and by extension millions, hundreds of millions of households around the world have been saying. Do you rue that, even though you've taken advantage of the internet and 3D and all these exciting new things, do you look back and think, gosh, that was something precious that, that we had back then, uh, that, we've, that we've lost? Yes. Um, I think that the ideals of public service broadcasting um, uh, are very important and they could be summarized, I would summarize them as by saying that you could the broadcaster, the public service broadcaster, should produce programs across the widest spectrum of interests and would measure his success by the width, to some degree, of, of that spectrum. Uh, and the fact that some parts of the spectrum didn't get as big an audience as other parts of the spectrum is neither here nor there. Of course they don't. Why should they? And why should people actually be expected to watch continuously from beginning to end? Neither of those things apply when we were Monopoly. Um, and um, Monopoly has its evils, has its problems, uh, and I don't deny those. But the, but the ideal of that spectrum of interest, which you've covered every, as much as things you can, uh, still remains with me as, as being the ideal of, of public service broadcasting. And the public service broadcasting gave you the opportunity to live a life of adventure. And we got the Royal Canadian Geographic Society of fellows and, and guests who devoted themselves 
to following your footsteps in many ways, to living a life less ordinary, life adventure. Why has it been important to you to get out there and, and see the world and, and, and live those adventures? Entirely selfishness. Uh, I mean, <laughs> what, I can't pretend otherwise. Of course not. Um, and the ability in the, 19, in the 1950s uh, to, um, to go to places uh, that others hadn't been to was uh, enormous. To start with, of course, there were whole areas of the country, of, of the world, that had never been seen on television, you know. Nobody, for example, had ever filmed animals in Madagascar, as far as I could discover, uh, before we did in 1959 or 61 or whatever it was. Uh, that there were, that no film existed of those wonderful lemurs, you know. Um, and we were given extraordinary freedom. Uh, it was a small organisation. We didn't spend much money. I can remember what my budgets were. My budget, I had £300 for films. I had 300 for film stock, £300 for travel, £300 for living expenses. And they gave me £100 as a sort of bonus, making the thousands. And they would say, uh, where do you want to go? And I would say, uh, I thought I'd like to go to um, Sumatra. Oh, really? Uh, is there much of interest there? Well, I'm not absolutely sure, of course. But I, <laughs> I, I, I hope we'll find something. Uh, when will you be back? Oh, I think well, here we are in uh, August, September. September. I think we'll be back for Christmas. Oh, that'd be very good. Uh, good afternoon. <laughs> and, and, and there was nothing like health and safety. Can you imagine? Health and safety. Well, you, you, for what you were doing last time, I wonder you got away with that going up the Yukon. How did you manage that? Well, we didn't tell the HQ. No, that's right. <laughs> uh, is, do, is that sense of excitement and adventure still there today when you're making your programs? Because, of course, cameras have been... Uh, or are you still taking cameras to places that have never been filmed before? Yeah, but, I mean, if you can actually get on your mobile phone and talk from almost ex anywhere, I mean, the whole thing is, is dead. I mean... Uh, it's finished. Uh, we went to Indonesia and we were uh, disappeared for for two two months in the middle of Borneo, um, and people just didn't know where we were, uh, and um, we weren't too sure ourselves. <laughs> but, but, but nobody was there to check you, and there was no way of checking it. There was no phone. There was no mobile phone. There was no way of getting in contact with anyone. Um, so those days were. Were, were bliss. They were, certainly um, uh, they they had their their problems. Certainly, I mean, in, in one's own, rela own relationships. But no, it was a, it was a fantastic privilege. But but that's what travellers like. I mean, you you do it all the time now. Well, nothing. No, 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 sadly, getting lost. My wife's getting a bit nervous in the front row now. <laughs> take off. But there are things to explore today. I mean, you're you're still fired by a passion for for geography, nature. Um, so, so what what is what's left for us all to explore today? Well, you're do, doing it in new ways. I mean, I mean, before um, the first trips I did in the fifties was with an, uh, one chap. My, I, I took the recorder for the sound recording. He took the film, sixteen millimeter film. It was a wind up clockwork camera. Um, and 100-foot rolls, 400 uh, on occasion. Um, and uh, nobody, as I say, knew where we were. Um, and it, it, it was, sometimes it was tough, and sometimes you didn't know where you were. But it was huge fun, um, and, and I, I went out simply out of curiosity to have a great time. Uh, reverting to Madagascar, nobody, I had no idea what, what these animals were. And to be able to come back and say, that is the, the biggest living lemur, 
and do a sequence of it was just a huge privilege. But now, of course, everybody's done all that. So now you have to do it all over again, but you do it better. And every, I mean, a number of times I've sat on a, on a platform and said, I don't know how we're going to manage next year because how will we do it better than we did? And the answer is that the boffins of various kinds give you more kit and more ways of doing things. I mean, the latest latest thing now is, is the drone, as you will know. I bet you took a drone, didn't you? Absolutely. There you go. Yeah. You see. But how long has there been drones? Three years, four years, yeah. five years? Yeah. About that? You know, and so everybody, and of course you sit by your far side, and you never even think about how that shot was taken, nor should you, nor am I asking that you should. Uh, what I'm asking is that you should get a, a better, more rounded, exciting picture of what was going on. You shouldn't be worrying about how you do it. But, um, uh, and what will the next, I mean, now we can film, slow things down, we can speed things up, we can film uh, in the dark, we can film uh, with uh, just heat, um, uh, we can film macroscopically and microscopically and on the zones and in the air and the bottom of the sea and the tops of mountains, everywhere. So, um, of course, we as broadcasters, and I'm sure you're the same, think, I've got got to get something, I've got to do it new. I don't think the audience actually thinks this is, is, that, that's all that important. The as far as the audience is concerned, it's the story. And if you, you, never, you should never, never forget, neither do you, because I, I know from your programs, you don't forget what the story is. And uh, it, it's stories that, that attract people to programs. Uh, and if we can tell them in, as it were, in, in, in more um, beautiful pictures, exciting pictures, fine. But if you haven't got a story, you are conceding, deceiving yourself if you think you can get away with just showing something because it's technically new. My, my passion for history, let me, let me delve a little bit into, into your history, if I may. What was it in your upbringing and, and your background... And, and I ask this as a, a father of young children. I'm hoping they're going to turn out to be Sir David Attenborough's one day. How was your childhood uh, instructive in creating the, the adult that you became? Um, I grew up in Leicester, uh, and uh, I had a bike. And in 1935 and 1937, you could get on your bike and you could go and find fossils. The eastern part of, of Leicestershire is on the Jurassic, full of beautiful things, ammonites and uh, belemnites and nautiloids and brachiopods and wonderful things. Um, and uh, I, I, I remember very well just hitting a rock like that and it fell apart. And, and there was this perfect, beautiful, perfect in every detail. Beautiful, and I realized that I, my eyes were the, I was the first person ever to see that shell in 150 million years. The sun had not shone on it. That was the first time it was. Now, if that doesn't excite your imagination, I don't know what, what, what to ask for. Because <laughs> to me, it was a, th a thrill. And of course, once you start doing that sort of things, you get you overlay all these sort of things. You start working out, you start collecting for a start, but you also start working out why this is different from that, or whether it's in fact is the same, or whether they're male and female, or whatever. And before you know where you are, you are a, a, a naturalist of some sort. Um, and uh, um, I mean, no, I, I picked um, mistaken point up in Nova Scotia to mention just a moment because that's the same thing. And, and that's, that site has not been known for more than a decade and a half, I think. 
And those, those are not 150 million years old. These are 2,000 million years old. And perfect in every detail. And nobody knows what they, how they lived. Nobody knows the physiology. Everything's there to pray for. You, you, we still, I mean, the, the papers are coming out all the time about this wonder, these wonderful fauna. Um, and, and so the excitement of reading this if you, if you don't feel it, well, you should, certainly shouldn't be in television doing our job, and I'm, but, but I know you do feel that, and you feel just the same as I do. Absolutely. And, and, and so as a, as, a, as a young man, you're bicycling all over uh, Leicestershire, completely unattended by teachers yes. and parents, and so you're just, you're just okay, so you're, that's independent spirit there. And then how did you find formal education? Did, did, it, all, did, it, sort of, did it beat the interest out of you, or, or would you, would, did you make great teachers? I must... I must, I must be honest um, and, and, and beg forgiveness from the people I'm not going to be very polite about. But I was, I was brought up in the war. Um, and all uh, people of, of serviceable age uh, were in the services. So the, the, my teachers were, were old men who had done their time in, in schools. and Unruly boys, uh, you know, beating them, having to deal with them for a career, they, 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 there were two inspiring teachers. But, but it weren't, they weren't great teachers. And nobody, nobody taught me zoology or geology. My, there was a nice, there was a, a man called Mr. Lacey who was very nice and good to me, um, who was a biologist. Uh, but by and large, um, my classic education, and I now spend time thinking about classics one way or another for various reasons, and I realised how footling it was that I spent days, weeks, uh, uh, I mean, two or, three, two or three times, four times a week, saying French regular verbs, or indeed Latin. Can you know any all that lot? I mean, what does it mean? I didn't... I, I, <laughs> I had no idea what it meant when I left school. Yeah. I've got a faint idea now what it means. But the idea of reading Thucydides or, or, or Lucretius, which I was, wanted to read for various reasons, I, I couldn't start. De Bello Gallico, Julius Caesar. Yeah, I mean, I first book, uh, first page, first paragraph. That's about it. <laughs> <laughs> So, so you wish you'd sp- you wish you'd spent more time being allowed to pursue the the, the sciences and and uh, the naturalism that you you discovered as a young boy. No, I I think that uh, I mean I was being taught by pe- by teachers who were, had the standards of nineteen uh, almost pre-war fourteen eighteen war really, um, and the notion I mean it was a, it was a grammar school a day school, um, and. Um, that was what they taught you. You taught d- declensions and how to decline verbs and so on. Um, and that was supposed to be Latin. And, and it seemed to me they were wasted hours of my youth. Uh, if, if I had a, a faintest idea of why I was learning Latin, then uh, I, I don't think you should have started learning Latin until you were in the sixth form myself. And then suddenly you would realize, as I think probably you do again, um, that there are great riches here, and there are, there are windows to be opened, and perspectives to see to be sought, and new ways of thinking, and, that, and all that. That's what Latin's for. Uh, uh, people who say, "Well, I think it's very useful." Of course, you understand the derivation of English words. Come on, you know. You, <laughs> I, think, I can get that from a dictionary. 
but, but, but you're also a man who has this wonderful lifelong love of learning, and that's clearly right up to the present day, and that's gone all the way through. And so it just, we, we needn't associate learning just with school, do we? No, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, my, my father was the principal of a university college, which is now the University of Leicester, uh, and he was um, a, a marvellous teacher. And I remember very well um, I, uh, reverting to one of these fossils. I found one of these fossils, and I took them to my father, and, um, and I said, um, uh, what is this, father? And in his, in, he said, instead of saying, well, it's a thing called Dibunofilum turbinatum McCoy, and you'll find bottle this up the other. He didn't say that. He said, I have no idea, son. You know, but of course there are there are books which you could probably find where you could find that out and there is a museum where you could compare it with things and so on. Why don't you do that? So I went to that and then I came and and, and, and second, I said, Father, it's most exciting. Did you realize that Dibunofilum you know, terminated? It's actually a coral. Did you know that? It was found in <laughs> carboniferous limestone and so on. Never. Is it really so, son? Yeah. And because he was a teacher. And, and, and teaching, as we all know, is not about pouring milk into milk bottles. I mean, it, it, it's, it's finding out, it's wonder, it's excitement, it's thrill. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special mini-series. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when using messaging apps, They shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high-quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes, and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage. Add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Dan Snow at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. And that's something you've continued to do right up to the present day? Um, not, not consciously. Um, I mean, I, I, I would like, I suppose, in, in being 
looking at it in cold blood, as it were, I hope it was educational. But you don't do it because it's educational. You do it because it's absolutely fascinating. And if you don't think it's fascinating, you shouldn't be doing it. <laughs> and do you, so that's interesting. Do you think today... Uh, young people that don't ride on their bicycles around Leicestershire are accompanied very much anymore, uh, sadly. But do you think they have access to learning materials because of the internet, because of the apps and some of the amazing things you've made? Do you think that helps to make up? Do you, do you, are you oh. jealous of their access to education now? Yes, I'm sure it does. Of course it does. But, but the trouble is, 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 is making that leap off the, off the computer screen. That's the jump that you need to do. Of course, the computer screen opens all kinds of windows and doors and, and excitements and, and, and uh, uh, vistas. Uh, but it should not end there. It should be simply a way... I mean, that's the thing about television. Television is, is actually... People say, uh, uh, why don't we have more instructive television? Television is actually not a very good teacher. Because television moves at its, its, its own pace and not your pace. The places where you wanted it to slow down in order because you didn't understand for me, it's going hell for leather. And the places uh, where you are bored by it, it's still boring. So <laughs> what television does is to light uh, flames of, just candles of enthusiasm. That's what it does. It flames of excitement that you on flame, you say, gosh, that's, I, must, I must find out more about that. And to, uh, to convert television to something being methodically going through the laws of physics or whatever is not, in my view, the best use of television. Books do that. What's wrong with books? They can take you at your right pace. What television should do is, is to send you to those books and make it imperative that you are desperate to find out what the answer is to that problem. And look at, so you look in the book. That's what it is. Speaking of uh, answers to problems, I'm very struck with your, your more recent work because I'm one of these people who gets terribly depressed when I think about uh, species extinction and global warming and all the diversity we're losing. And in your recent work, you've been relentlessly... I don't know if optimistic is the right word, but, but constructive, and you're, you're showing what people are doing around the world, and they are solving problems. Are you, how are you feeling at the moment about the, the, the challenges we face? Big question. Um, well, it would... It would um... It would be un un untrue to say that uh, I think everything is fine. Of course it's not. We are in the worst situation that humanity as a whole has ever been in history. Ever. Um, uh, we, we, we face huge dangers and huge problems. Um, that cannot be denied. and It would be uh, irresponsible to say anything other. Equally, it would be unduly pessimistic to say uh, that we haven't agreed on things in this conference or that conference. You're a historian. Never in the history of Homo sapiens have all people in the world got together and agreed on anything. Anything. And how are we going to suppose that suddenly, you know, we're all going to get together and we're all going to see with one vision and we're all going to agree to do this, that or the other? Of course we can't. Um, and, and so it's going to be one um, battle that's one inch by inch by inch. But at the same time, uh, we are aware, or should be aware, of at our heels, the, the, the disaster clouds are, are gathering. And we are getting more and more urgent. Um, there is, we, uh, conservationists did achieve one thing. One thing very remarkable. Uh, they did get together, the nations of the world, uh, on the question of whales. 
Uh, they got the whaling nations together, this is what, 20 years ago, um, and said, and, and remarkably, remarkably, all these people, Japan and America and France and everybody, Australia, and they all got together and they say, okay, we, will, uh, we understand that if we go on the way we're going, whales will disappear and that would be a disaster. And so they got together and came to an agreement. And the whales have been saved. And the whale, so that is, I mean, it's a tiny thing. But it's, but it's a, a, an example of what can be done. Um, and last, a year last Christmas in, in Paris, I was there at some of the, of the things. We, it did seem that we had got together. We really did. Uh, China and, and America and, and Europe, we were all talking the same language about the importance of, of dealing with climate change. Um, and, and I remember um, the chief scientist of this country in that time coming out with him and saying, I think he said, we've got that, we've got that. And indeed, two, a week before the American, last American presidential election, I met him at a, at a function, and he said, it's wonderful, we saved it, we signed it, it's all signed, and we're, gonna, we're okay. We are now can see that there is a possibility of, of dealing with global warming. Uh, and David King, that were his words. And, uh, and two nights after, there was the announcement of the, of the president's election, uh, and electing a president who wishes to deny that. And that is, I believe, a, a major disaster for the world. And, uh, it's not the time to be polite and political. Um, and I cannot deny saying that. Um, but it is a, a, a huge problem. In the other projects you've seen, whether it's the science trying to take on the challenge of whether it's cleaning up our oceans from the terrible amounts of plastic in them, uh, whether it's algae farms, whether it's renewable energy. Are you feeling positive about some of the steps we're now trying to take, and perhaps which won't be affected by politics at the very highest level, because the science is starting to take on a life of its own. It's starting to work and deliver on the ground. Um, I, I have great worries about whether you will get huge uh, uh, actions by vast numbers of people just by, present, by, by a political diktat, one way or the other. The hopeful thing in, in Paris in, a year ago, 18 months ago, uh, was that there was a notion that we could move from being dependent upon carbon and work out, work out a, a road map which would look at the problems of getting energy from renewable resources and doing so, and this is the key point, and doing so, so it was cheaper than oil. Cheaper than coal. So you didn't have, to, you don't, wouldn't have to say to nations and people, you ought to do this because it's better for you. You would say, you ought to do this because it's cheaper. It'll make your life better. That was, that was the, what was on the table. 
and, and the, the notion that, that, that developed countries would focus their research budgets, their scientific research budgets, on dealing with the little problems of how you deal with storage of electricity, for example, storing it, uh, in, in, which is one of the big problems at the moment, how you would be able to transmit it without undue loss, let alone how you would be able to catch it, which we know. But the, we know what the problems are. We know the science that would solve them. All that is needed is the technological uh, expertise to work out this and, and to collaborate worldwide. And that was the prize. And that was what seemed to be within our grasp. How do you think history will judge your generation, our generation, the, the, the people that were alive in the, in the 20th century into the 21st? I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> well, I don't. I don't. I mean, it depends what happens. Um, and, and it depends whether we are at the moment at a turning point or whether we are not. Or put it this way, whether we turn this way or whether we turn that way. Um, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, we, we muddle along, don't we? Uh, you can only hope for the best. What, what advice do you have? That we, I, I, think I, some, I feel very helpless in the face of these enormous problems. I mean, is there anything that we can do, people in this room, people listening to this? Well, yes. I mean, uh, you know, we talk about the things that we, we want to do with our own personal lives in terms of waste or, or refuse disposal or whatever. Um, and one does that because you feel, I was going to say, cleaner. I mean, you feel, you feel better for it. Uh, but you have to work very hard to think that it's going to make all the difference to the problems that we're talking about. So ultimately, the problems we are talking about are political problems uh, because they have to be solved on a worldwide, by, by worldwide uh, leaders. And we have to make our voice heard um, and, and to, our, to our politicians. Um, and in this country, we haven't done that badly, not, not too badly. Um, but uh, it isn't, I mean, one just hopes that it's worldwide that the people are going to get up together and, and speak about this. And I don't see any recent chance of them, uh, political people doing it, unless, as I point out, it's, it's, it's economically better. It is cheaper. It is more efficient. It helps you. Put, it puts things in your pocket, not takes them away. That's the key. Sadly, we are, we're running out of time now, so I just want to ask one last thing. Again, it's advice in a way. Young people, we've got lots of young people in this room, they're, they're affiliated to the Royal Ge uh, Canadian Geographical Society. They, they, they're seeking to live a life of adventure, a life of exploration. What advice have you got for them? What, how, how, can, how can they be as fulfilled as you've been in your life? I, I don't know, because I've been very lucky. But, but, but in fact, there are lots of opportunities for kids now. And there are a lot of organizations, including this, and including many in this country, which I know better than anything I know about in North America. There are opportunities to do these things. The great heroes and, and heroines of, uh, of our society, of course, are teachers, uh, and particularly the teachers of, of, of kids uh, in their uh, first years. Um, I would have been involved with an organization that has tried to persuade schools to dig up the tarmac and put in a pond with a couple of bushes in it. Mm. Um, and, and when you see that happen, and I was involved in it at some stage once, uh, and to go and see these kids who are, who are just dipping in ponds and, and looking, what is that? You know? And, and the light in their eyes. It, and it, it, it's, it's so heartening. It makes you, makes you cry, you know? 
Um, and now we, we, I mean, it's called Learning Through Landscapes, is a charity, and, and it was, it's doing a lot of hard work and very good work and, and succeeding. But of course, with the population growth, now what's happening is that the schools themselves, they haven't got, they even got room for a program of any kind. They're having to put up new, new schools, new, new classrooms, new, new buildings. Um, and so that's having a bit of a setback. But, but the, the, once a child has been shown what the natural world is, it will live with them forever. Uh, of course, other things take over in the child's imagination and, and computers and so on and so on. But if you totally lose that initial thrill and excitement, you've lost one of the most valuable things in your life. One of the great sources of pleasure and excitement and, and contemplation. Uh, and, and this country is, is, is famous. When you look at it, it, this country has been done very well in its schools with, with those sorts of things. And, and, and that's under pressure now. I know that teachers are, but they're, they're the heroes. They're, they're the, the people who have the future of our country in their hands. Okay, this is my last question. What can we expect? Because I know you're very busy. You're flying off to Switzerland and North America. The next, what, what, what are you looking forward to in the next few months? Um, I'm going uh, next week to Switzerland to film some... Uh, um, extraordinary ants in the, in the pine forest, which at the moment are, are hibernating, but which when they come out, um, they start, some of them go down and start living happily with them, but others start a warfare, and we are planning about this. It sounds boring, and uh, <laughs> not, at all, not at all. I just hope we will make it as exciting as it actually is, because it will tell you a lot about what makes uh, an, uh, a genus split into new species. But that's one thing. And then I am going to Canada. Um, right. <laughs> well, it's an extraordinary story. Um, it's about elephants, uh, which are not, there are not a lot in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, the biggest elephant ever captured uh, in the 19th century was an enormous young male who was called Jumbo, who came to London Zoo. Hence why everybody else calls him Jumbo. That, that was the first one. And he grew and he grew, and, and anyone knows about anything. So when male elephants become uh, adult, they, can, they get mustard and they can become very violent. And the London Zoo um, became very alarmed about Jumbo, uh, because what would happen if he suddenly went on the rampage? And there was an extraordinary relationship between him, uh, Jumbo, and his keeper. And the keeper, uh, Geelong's story, was almost certainly on drugs. But anyway... <laughs> in, 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 the end, in the end, you couldn't do anything with the elephant without dealing with the keeper, and the keeper was very different. Um, and, and in the end, uh, they sold Jumbo to um, Barnum, and, Barnum and Bailey Circus. And, um, and the keeper needed, he didn't want to go. So he, he, you couldn't get Jumbo to go into a, a transport and, and without the keeper. Long story, but I, the end of it was that he ended up in Barnum and Bailey Circus, traveling through North America. And they, they went to a, a town in southern Canada. Uh, and as they always did, um, the circus paraded through town. 
and head of the troop was Jumbo. And Jumbo suddenly broke loose. Uh, and he went uh, and charged, broke through, charged down the, the railroad, started tearing along the railroad, and there was a locomotive coming in the opposite direction. And the two met, and Jumbo actually derailed the locomotive. <laughs> and of course was himself killed. But there are a lot of morals about it. We discovered that the, the skeleton of Jumbo is in the Smithsonian. And we are using the bones of Jumbo to make out a lot of deductions about what Jumbo was and Jumbo did and so on. So that's the story. I shouldn't have told it you. We haven't published it. Uh, don't tell anyone. Do not tell anyone. And you won't... You, don't bother to look at the programme. But, but, but the rest of Britain will know about it in two years. Well, we look forward to many more years of programmes. Thank you very much, Sir David. That's been a real... Hi everyone, it's me, Dan Snow. Just a quick request. It's so annoying and I hate it when other podcasts do this, but now I'm doing it and I hate myself. Please, please go on to iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps, basically boosts up the chart, which is good. And then more people listen, which is nice. So if you could do that, I'd be very grateful. I understand if you don't subscribe to my TV channel. I understand if you don't buy my calendar, but this is free. Come on, do me a favour. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.